Welcome to the DTB podcast for April 2022, volume 16, number four. My name's David Fazakli and I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Uh, thank you for joining us for this podcast in which we will talk about April's DTB. And this is a particularly important issue for us as April marks 60 years since DTB first appeared. On April the 20th, 1962, the Medical Letter, a non-profit-making publication on drug and therapeutics, was first published by the Consumers Association in the UK. Um, and this was a collaboration with the Consumers Union in the USA, which had started to publish a bulletin called The Medical Letter a few years earlier. And Andrew Herxheimer, our first editor, had seen The Medical Letter and had been so impressed with what it offered clinicians that he got an agreement to import it to the UK and publish the American content modified with uh, UK drug names. Then in 1963, he renamed it as Drug and Therapeutics Bulletin, and the formal ties with the medical letter were severed. And from then on, content was produced by a team based in the UK. And so far, DTB has had four editors. Andrew was in charge for 30 years, followed by Joe Collier, Ike Iannaccio, and James, you've been editor for the last 10 years. Remarkably, yes. <laughs> and you're still here. Yes, on, on the shoulders of giants. Um, so here we are, 60 years after that first edition. Um, we will come back and look at that first, or volume one, number one, later in the podcast, and also talk a little bit about other things we've got planned for this our anniversary year. Um, let's start with a discussion on, or talk about your editorial, James, in which you question whether there is still a need for you know, publications like DTB. And I have to say that in cricketing terms, you've come off your long run for this one. So do you want to, do you, do you want to say something about it? Yes, thank you. I mean, it, it is fascinating, the, the changes that have occurred over the last 60 years. You know, when we were preparing for this uh, 60th anniversary, we were looking at the sort of landscape uh, 60 years ago. And it uh, bears absolutely no comparison with the landscape now. I mean, there was no statutory regulation of medicines in 1962. There wouldn't be for another 10 years. The BNF was still called or was still being formed after the National War Formulary. And it still included a lot of sort of the old fashioned traditional tonics and mixtures that were all the rage in, in the sort of turn of the century. And, um, and the concept of evidence-based medicine was decades away. So really interesting. And in my editorial, I'd like to, I sort of, we go through that and we go through how that landscape has changed Cochrane collaboration starting in 1993, setting up of the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, NICE, in 1999, and, and the real sea change towards evidence-based medicine guidelines. And really, as you say, so so why do we still need uh, the DTB? And in um, my editorial, I talk about the significant change that has just gone on in the last year around how the various major agencies that make up if you like, the medical industrial complex, the major changes that are going on, they're being aligned to, as I put in my editorial, to commercialise really the development and use of medicines. So what we had at the start of DTB's life was really no information or very little helpful information. Uh, fast forward 60 years, we've got volumes of, of information about about medicines and, and you know, you've got people who are preparing evaluations of new medicines such as NICE, 
But your question is whether the relationship is getting too close to pharma? Yes, I think my concern is that it is very clear that uh, UK pharma is a major plank of the post-Brexit economic planning for the UK and the government together you know, with the life sciences organisations, the MHRA and NICE are coordinating a very slick operating machine that is going to enable um, pharmaceutical companies with far less investment to be able to get their drugs licensed in the UK, get them starting to be used clinically in the UK and being evaluated by the NHS. Um, far quick more quickly and fast than anywhere else in the world and this is a way of of establishing a really strong pharmaceutical uh, industry and, and that's great and you know i'm not putting that down as long as all the safety mechanisms that we should expect now in the 21st century are actually in place and my concern is that there's a real uh, risk that actually the desire to create this industrial sort of mega uh, machine is going to actually mean that conflicts will develop and uh, there's a place for an in, you know, independent voice that's looking at the actual nitty gritty with regard to the evidence for these drugs as they come on to be licensed and saying, well, hang on a minute. How does this compare with the current medications we currently use? Hang on a minute. You've used proxy markers. How valid is that? for our patients in front of us as clinicians. You know, those things are really important. And uh, it's not clear that um, that's understood by the current setup as it is being constructed. And you quote, or at least give two examples of um, the way that medicines are perhaps being promoted or, or used in, in the UK by the NHS, which wouldn't have happened in the past? Absolutely. I mean, Inclisrin is a, a classic example of this new uh, accelerated access collaborative that's possible. It's a lipid modifying agent. Uh, I was very surprised when NICE issued a press release that really sounded a bit like an advert, you know, potential game changer and preventing thousands of people from dying prematurely. We had the health and social care secretary on Twitter calling it a groundbreaking new drug. Um, and yet this is a drug that despite now having been pushed through to primary care with NHS England informing local prescribing committees that they must approve it. This is a drug that currently hasn't got any data that compares it with other lipid-lowering treatments and no long-term evidence that it has any impact on cardiovascular outcomes. So I think this is important that you know we understand that this is the nature of how things are going to be. Um, we've also got an issue with uh, the NHS England and two pharmaceutical companies who are doing um, a, a marketing agreement with uh, direct-acting oral anticoagulants and there's this new um, agreement that the companies provide investment for detect, protect and perfect initiatives based on the number of DOAC medication packs that they are prescribed. So there's a new partnership going on and that may be great, but it needs independent scrutiny for sure. And the argument being that the bulletins like ourselves have a role to use a, a coin for an old phrase to shine a spotlight on these things and check they're okay. Totally right. And in fact, as we're going to come on to later, Sydney Wolf talks about the concept of sunlight being a very good 
uh, antiseptic and, you know, shining lights onto places where perhaps the light doesn't always shine, I think is a really good way of making sure people stay sharp and stay focused on the really important things that matter to patients, which is actually safety and efficacy. Okay, thank you very much. So let's move seamlessly into um, the article written by Sydney Wolf. It's it's a forum piece, so a discussion piece that um, Sydney, who was part of or established the American Public Citizen Organization, and he talks about uh, what well, his starting point is the U.S. database on conflicts of interest, but he goes further than that. So what? What does he talk about? So this is all about uh, conflicts of interest, uh, financial conflicts of interest um, between healthcare providers and physicians. And in fact, it's not only physicians in the US, it includes dentists, podiatrists, optometrists, and even chiropractors. And this is an open payments database. So in the US, it's a mandatory process that companies, if they offer payments to any of these groups, they have to basically publish that. Uh, it's been running now, um, I think, since 2014 in its current form, although there have been uh, previous iterations of it. And he just talks about um, the last six years um, up until 2019 uh, and the sort of funding and the impact that funding has on the behaviour of physicians who receive it. And what struck me was, was some of the figures that he, he quotes. I think it's something like eighteen billion dollars <laughs> in absolutely. general payment. And these are these are general payments. This is not research money. This is no. hospitality, uh, consultancy fees, travel costs. Eighteen billion over six years paid yeah. paid to clinicians. And there's another thirty-two billion of research payments. And that's not. I don't think that's sort of external research payments, if you like. So that's not necessarily the cost of research and development that you think about. This is payments that have gone to individuals or to organizations for creating um, you know, research articles or whatever it might be. So it's an extraordinary amount of money. And what's great is that Sydney demonstrates um, with a study that was looking at a drug used uh, for the treatment of inflammatory bowel disease, adalimumab. And he showed that for every dollar paid to gastroenterologists a further three dollars are spent on the drug so it's you know you can understand why the pharmaceutical companies do this because you know you pay one dollar and get three back and as you say there are other correlations that people have made with 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 other drugs and and, and payments made and the i guess the beauty of this database in the states is it's publicly accessible we can search it from the UK. If you've got an author of a paper that you've read, you can look up that author and find out whether they have any conflicts of interest. And it gives you their previous five years of um, payments that they've received. So it makes you makes you rather envious of what, what, what information is available there compared with what we don't have over here. Totally. I mean, it's, it's remarkable, actually, that in an area I'd like to have thought that we would be better than the USA, actually we're behind enormously. And it's, I mean, it's, it just makes absolute sense for this sort of database to be in, in place. It just ensures that the sunlight is there and you can see what's going on. And that is so important. And I think it'll be particularly important in the next few years because um, part of the uh, life sciences strategic direction is they're talking about uh, physicians being mandated almost under their GMC registration to, to take part in research. You know, it'll almost be a case of part of your GMC registration. So it's going to be really important that we can see, you know, what that research is doing, if, if it's financed by companies, and if so, how much. 
So hats off to the USA for having a, a database that is light years ahead of ours. Um, but I suppose the important point that Sid makes is that it's great to have the information and it's it's fantastic to be able to search it and you can look up clinicians throughout America. But perhaps disclosure on its own is not enough because it, it clearly still goes on and people, people are still being paid vast amounts of money. Um, and there is another step, isn't there, in the program that, that making sure that conflicts of interest don't impact on things like medical education. You know, the disclosure is the first part, but we need to go further. Absolutely right. I think it's the whole integrated approach. This is just one cog in the wheel and you need the whole machine to be functioning to make sure you understand exactly what's going on. But if nothing else, let's, you know, let's put the pressure on for a comprehensive national database in, in this country. But uh, that's not happening yet. OK, thank you very much. Um, we've got a commentary article this month in which Tech and one of his colleagues have looked at a study of uh, blood pressure treatment with a pill containing four antihypertensive drugs at very low doses. There was quite a bit of this in the media recently. Uh, interestingly, they call it a quad pill, not a polypill, but that, that, that may be to differentiate it from what we think of as a polypill. So do you want to say a bit about the study? Yes. I mean, I, I, I sort of, I'm always interested in these studies because um, I'm never quite sure what they're trying to achieve. But at the same time, there's often some quite useful information that comes out of it. So this is, as you say, it's not a polypill because I, I think they've done that because they haven't included aspirin in it or, or statin. So this is just four different antihypertensives at a quarter of their normal dose um, and they compared in effect they compared its effectiveness this pot this quad pill against herbisartan 150 milligrams um, and lo and behold they demonstrated that uh, you got better control um, at 12 weeks with that um, I was slightly surprised because I I, I thought the the quad pill was an interesting mix. So although they had herbisartan, amlodipine and indapamide at quarter strength um, of the normal, actually they had bisoprolol at 2.5 milligrams. And whilst that is a quarter of the maximum dose, 10 milligrams, most patients don't tolerate that. So it's quite interesting. I, I wondered whether they missed a trick there by actually giving a much lower dose of bisoprolol. But yeah, uh, it's, I mean, for me, what it reflects on is, that, and I've, this has become a, my practice, and this is not really strictly speaking in line with nice guidance, but I very often do not titrate up to maximum anymore of a single pill. I will add in a low dose of another pill quite early on whilst I'm getting someone's blood pressure controlled. And that's because I think two things. First of all, I think patients get upset if they have to move on to more than one pill. And of course, they all will have to, because by definition, most patients with controlled blood pressure will be on at least three different tablets. And two, it does seem to you do seem to get better control with less side effects. So um, I think the concept of more, but in lower doses is not a bad idea. I mean, it was interesting to see that the, and it goes back to your point about the, the dose of bisoprolol, is that there was quite a lot of uh, bradycardia, or at least you know, they, they recorded heart rates below 50 beats per minute in a much higher proportion of the intervention group than, than the herbicidal group. And that mm. was 12% you know, versus 0.4%. Um, interestingly, also low blood pressure was quite a bit higher in, in the quad pill group. Um, than, than the herbicidin group. But overall, the difference in what clinic BP was about, what, seven millimetres of mercury? 
Yes. I mean, and that, to be honest, that is quite significant. I mean, I think we forget sometimes that the average improvement you get on adding a single drug to a to a group of drugs for someone who's got high blood pressure is usually only around 2.5 to 5 millimetres of mercury. So seven is good. It's just an interesting concept. I think it's always a difficult one. I mean, it seems a shame that pharmacists can't uh, sort of almost mix these up for you. Um, so you can actually give individualized medication to patients that just suits them in a single capsule rather than having to juggle and pop out lots of different pills. And there's the point, isn't it? You know, we've, got, we've got a study that shows something, but as yet using those doses really isn't feasible. No, exactly, exactly. Um, but uh, always interesting because I think it's always interesting to see um, what impact you can have with low doses of antihypertensives and therefore it may be that we should be thinking a lot more along the lines of using lower doses but but multiple drugs rather than titrating up to maximum okay thank you very much um let's quickly look at a select item that we've published this month which was a a study on the awareness of the harms of long-term nitrofurantoin which may not be on top of everyone's radar but actually there were some quite important learning from this Yes, so this was a BJGP open study that looked at uh, professionals' understanding of problems with long-term nitrofurantoin prescribing. So simple questionnaire was sent out to six or 700 GPs, about 130 urologists, and just assessed their practice when prescribing nitrofurantoin long-term. And what was clear from the results, and of course, they only had about a 30% response, which is pretty good actually for for GPs and neurologists. But um, what they discovered was actually the understanding amongst this group of some of the side effects, particularly of hepatotoxicity and lung toxicity was pretty poor. Um, and it is, uh, you know, I've just recently had a patient who developed uh, some interstitial pneumonitis taking nitrofurantoin actually on a short course. Um, and it reminded me that this is a drug that we've got to be careful with, particularly in the long term. The other part of this survey was was to see whether people actually did do a whether they knew about what they had to do and then b did they do it and and most people didn't seem to do baseline assessments when starting nitrofurantoin. No, so about forty percent of people were unaware of the liver issues and never and about the same number about forty odd percent never monitored liver function and of only about twenty eight percent of people I think recognised the lung toxicity and fifty three percent never monitored lung function at all whilst on long-term nitrofurantoin. Um, so yeah, this is definitely a blind spot, I think. And I think that's possibly because nitrofurantoin um, was not a drug that we used very much until the guidance sort of um, altered, I think probably in about five years ago, and it became much more frequently used together with trimethoprim as sort of first line. I think there was a move away from the cephalosporins. And um, I think as a consequence, it's not one that perhaps is sort of being formally taught, if that makes sense. It's not something that uh, a lot of the professionals out there sort of were using when they were much, much junior, if you like. That's only my theory, but I think, you know, there's something about that. No, I think, I think that's, that's a good theory. And I think the other thing is that it probably is a fault of the systems that we operate in that it, if you look for clear guidance on what you should monitor in whom you should monitor and when you should monitor it 
you're struggling to find a clear statement of fact that says, right, do this at this point. You know, even the BNF or uh, the summary of product characteristics doesn't really give you that, you know, do this now or do this at six months. And perhaps that's what we should be calling for is, is clarity. Or, yes. Or, of course, you could turn it on its head and say, well, since, you know, so few people are monitoring this drug, what are the outcomes? Are we, are we actually missing anything? Or is it actually that this was something which is not quite as important as we first thought? I mean, that's the other side of the coin, but I'm, I wouldn't dare to imagine that with that, you know, we need the evidence to demonstrate that. Indeed. And I think some of the findings, I think, was it one of the medical defense organizations had, and I think some of this stimulated, was stimulated by them saying that actually we've had quite a few complaints from patients who haven't been monitored properly. Mm. Um, and therefore, the, you know, clearly there is some sort of problem going on where where people are missing important signs or measuring you know, people before and during treatment. And I think that's, you know, that probably demonstrates that my thoughts are completely wide of the mark. But I think sometimes, um, I mean, for example, you know, ACE inhibitors, um, we used to start them, have to start them on half doses and things. and you in, know, hospital. They, in hospital. I mean, that thankfully has changed. <laughs> but, but I think, yes. But I think perhaps, you know, real world data, which is all the trend at the moment, perhaps that will begin to demonstrate um, the do's and, and the not, not, not necessary to do's um, in the future. So there may be some useful stuff coming out of this move towards um, using general practice, primary care and clinical data for this sort of thing. Okay, thank you very much. Um, and then finally, for this month, we've got another in our series of prescribing for pregnancy articles. What do we cover in this one and what were the key messages? Yeah, this is another lovely review on chronic hypertension. Um, and it's just a really excellent review. Looks at the, the risks of uh, women who um, might have blood pressure coming into pregnancy. They're really, really, really important issues around preconceptual counselling because of A, the concept of which drugs should or shouldn't be used in pregnancy, the lifestyle issues that are really important, and some little trip-ups like actually these patients should be taking aspirin from week 12. Um, and also the issue, should it be 75 milligrams or 150 if they are uh, overweight with a BMI over 35? There's been a new recent Royal College of uh, Gynecologist guidance that suggests they should use a bigger dose in uh, patients with higher BMI. So lots of sort of stuff for us in uh, primary care to think about and say, whoa, hang on, this woman has got high blood pressure. Now I need to think about conception. What are her plans? Do we need to be making sure that we get things sort of in the right place for her so that uh, pregnancy doesn't become a major issue for her? And key learning point for you, what would you do differently? I think for me, it was medication used. So make sure that you're using medication that can be used um, in pregnancy. ACE inhibitors sort of are very much contraindicated. They should be stopped immediately if a patient falls pregnant. So it's not like a lot of the uh, prescribing in pregnancy that we've done, which says, you know, do not stop a drug instantly. You know, we've, we've done that with epileptic drugs, but for, for hypertension, ACE inhibitors are contraindicated. So you need to stop them preferably before conception, um, but you can convert back immediately after delivery. So there's all kinds of little things which um, it's important we know and uh, act on. Okay, thank you very much. And it's worth saying that on our website, we've got a collection of all our 
articles on drug use in pregnancy on in one section so if you just look at our website and search for that you can you can see the whole series of articles uh, all together in one place um so that's april 2022's edition let's just go back to the very first edition of dtb april 1962 um what were the hot topics then so the hot topics then was pethidine. Is it like sort of super duper morphine or is it just a flash in the pan? And I think we can all know where that one ended up. Um, and then also a lot of discussion about anticholinergics for peptic ulcer disease and also discussion, um, fascinating discussion about steroids and ulcerative colitis, including uh, a randomized control trial from 1955. And what struck me, uh, just going back and reading this first edition was how it set the tone of what DTB was and and continues to be, um, which is partly about debunking claims. And I think I think the anticholinergic drugs article on that in that issue they debunked one of the advertising claims um, quite nicely in in that. The other was a, a comment I picked out on the um, in the morphine and pethidine article, which said that neither morphine nor pethidine is the ideal analgesic. And it can be expected that the search for better ones will continue. Well, clearly that search is still going on because, well, morphine's still the standard and we haven't really got anything better, though some people you know, have tried all sorts of things. Um, so that search goes on. And I think there was something you picked up in the, was it the ulcerative colitis article? Yes, it was once again in the middle, just a lovely paragraph by Andrew Herxheimer saying the novelty of any new drug, the optimism with which it is announced and communicated to patients and the relative paucity of side effects at low doses, which can have little more than placebo value, usually make for a promising beginning. When the compound is no longer new, it is no longer so strikingly effective. Um, and I think Andrew really understood what was going on with um, drugs and the way they're being promoted and recognised actually that um, so much was hyped and uh, made more of than it really was. And I think this is just, as you say, is what DTB has been doing for 60 years and I think will increasingly do over the next 60 so much has changed, but also much has stayed the same. Yeah. And, you know, we will continue to do what Andrew set the tone of in the, in the very early days of, of, of DTB. Um, other things just to touch on that we've got planned f for this year um, to mark this 60th anniversary. We're going to have a series of video interviews with our editorial board, which we'll host on our website. So we'll talk to various members. Well, we've got one with you, James, we've got one, and we'll have them with our various members of our editorial board talking about you know, their, their clinical experiences and, and some of their rationale for being part of DTB over the years. We're also going to have some short articles looking at how therapeutics has changed or hasn't changed over 60 years and seeing what DTB said and, and whether that's how much that has, has altered over the years. We're going to run some polls on our website um, and there'll also be a timeline of some of our key articles that have, have made a difference over the years. And we've also got a special um, piece from Sir Patrick Valance, um, who was on DTB's editorial board and advisory council and has written about his experience of DTB. So these will appear 
on our website during during the course of, of this year. Um, you can find all our articles also on our website at dtb.bmj.com. If you want to get involved with DTB, do let us know. You can suggest topics for articles, offer to be a peer reviewer, or even if you're that keen um, and you're completely without conflicts of interest, maybe you'd like to write us an article. Anyway, email us at dtb.bmj.com. And many thanks to everyone who has sent us comments and suggestions. Um, And thank you for listening to us. And we hope you'll be able to join us in a month's time for May's podcast. (laughs) 